Advent is that. It's a journey. A day-by-day walk to Christmas morning, right? We already got the countdown. Anybody else have the countdown in their house going? You got some 22 days till Christmas? That's right. Lily keeps it up for us. Some of us may have even started Advent calendars. Some really, you know, super religious ones like the cheese one from, uh, from Trader Joe's. Or, uh, or Cohen and some teeny mates. Like that's, you know, that's always great, right? But we're, 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 beginning, we're beginning the move, right? We're starting the move to count down to Christmas. But it's not the destination that makes Advent so special. The destination is exciting, right? It's great. We're all ready for Christmas Day. But Advent isn't about the destination so much as it is about the journey. The places that we're taking along the way. And the prophetic symbols and scriptures, the ap- um, apocalyptic or revelatory signs and sounds that fill the airways, screens, yards, and homes. Each is meant to help us pay attention to the visions of anticipation and arrival, the beginnings of the end, much like our stories and symbols do today. So here's what I want you to do. If you're a kid, anybody's a kid here? We have any kids here? Got some kids? You guys want to come up and hear a story? I got a story for us. You want to come and get a story? You can come sit down over here. Yeah. Yeah. Kellen's coming too. All right. Clementine's going to bring something to color on. Take notes. You know, that's right. She's, she's diligent like that. Hey, Sloan. How's it going? You can sit up here if you want. So, who, who in, does anybody have their Christmas tree up yet? I do. You do? Did you put it up? You did? Did you put the ornaments up? Did you help mom put the ornaments up? Yeah? Do you guys have your Christmas tree up yet? Yeah, yeah you have it? Clementine, is your Christmas tree up? Yeah. It's pretty cool. So do you guys know the story of the Christmas tree? Have you ever heard the story of where we get the Christmas tree? No? Yes, maybe some of us have. Well, just like most of our stories, stories of where we get everything from Christmas trees to stockings to carols we sing to the wreaths, like all the stories, they kind of start not with the thing itself, but with people, particularly people who are following Jesus. And so the story of the Christmas tree starts with a person. According to tradition... The first Christmas tree was the brainchild of a man named Winfrith. That's a fun name, isn't it? Winfrith. Can you guys hear me? Is this all right? Also known for his name, maybe more familiar name, Boniface, or St. Boniface as we call him today. Here's St. Boniface. Here's what he looks like. You see that? Yeah. That's that's all the pictures of him anyway. Now, Boniface's story is not the typical saintly tale. Oh, they're undoubtedly miraculous acts, but they play out more like a Marvel comic rather than a monastic intervention. The story goes like this. Boniface was born around 680 in England. That's right. He entered a Benedictine monastery before being commissioned by the Pope to evangelize what's modern-day Germany, first as a priest and eventually as a bishop. Boniface spent much of his life traveling through all of Germany with his tireless activities, his gift of organization, and his adaptable, friendly, yet firm character, Boniface went about re-strengthening regions that had already been introduced to Christ and bringing good news to Jesus to those who had not yet. So he's like a missionary, right? So he's helping to build the church, like Paul tells us to. Now, Henry Van Dyke, in his retelling of the story of the first Christmas tree, described Boniface like this. He said, he was fair and slight, so he, he kind of had a light complexion, and he was kind of skinny but straight as a spear and strong as an oaken staff. His face was still young. The smooth skin was bronzed by the wind and the sun. His gray eyes, clean and kind, flashed like fire when he spoke of his adventures. 
and of all the evil deeds of the false priests with whom he contended. So he kind of has this adventurous character about him, right? Around the year 723, so Boniface would have been in about 40 years old or so, was traveling with a small party in the region of Lower Hesse. It's a central German state, which you guys I'm sure know very well, right? <laughs> he knew the community near Geschmeyer, which was kind of halfway between Frankfurt and Berlin. Again, I know you guys know all this, right? And, who, and he had known this kind of community who was full of worshipers of gods to the ancient ancestors. So they didn't worship God like we worship. They worshiped the God of their ancient ancestors. Um, known to celebrate winter solstice with, and this is a little scary, human sacrifice. That's not the kind of gift we like to give, right? Typically, a child to a guy that was called the God of Thunder, a guy named Thor. Yeah, not the Thor who fights alongside the Avengers, though. Not this guy. A little bit different. In Boniface's day, Thor looked more like this. He was kind of a weird-looking cat riding goats. Kind of, kind of different, a little different, but that's, the, that's who the people of this kind of area tended to worship. And, and winter solstice would come around, the time of year which Christmas falls. They would often sacrifice something, a gift, to this god, and usually the gift was a child. Now, Thor's sacrifice was offered yearly at the base of a sacred oak tree known as the Thunder Oak, because he was, you know, the Lord of Thunder, the God of Thunder. So it looked kind of like this. That's why you see all these symbols in, in, uh, in their tradition, right? Now, Boniface decided to destroy the Thunder Oak, not only to save the life of the human sacrifices that were there, but also to show those who had little respect for the carpenter's son. Do you remember who the carpenter's son is? You know who the carpenter's son is? Jesus, that's right. Jesus was a carpenter's son. That he would not be struck down by lightning at the hands of Thor. Because the rumor was, if you tried to cut down that big old tree, the lightning would strike you, right? So it's kind of had this, this kind of intense little stories all around it, right? Now, as the story goes, Boniface and his companions reached the village on Christmas Eve where this was all going to take place. They arrived at the place of sacrifice just in time to interrupt it. With his bishop's staff, kind of looks like this. Right here, it's called a crozier. Kind of also looks a little bit like a candy cane, doesn't it? Like the shape of it. Kind of cool, yeah. He had that in his hand. Boniface approached the pagan crowd who had surrounded the base of the thunder oak, saying to this group, here's the thunder oak, and here the cross of Christ shall break the hammer of the false god Thor. Because remember, Thor had a big hammer that he liked to use. With a small child laid out for sacrifice, the executioner raised his hammer high, but on the downswing, Boniface extended his crozier, his, his little candy cane, but wood, like his wooden cane, right? He extended it to block the blow and miraculously breaking the stone hammer and saving the child's life. Which is kind of crazy, right? He has this big, big stone hammer. And you'd think the hammer would break the wood, but instead the wood broke the hammer. Afterward, Boniface is said to have proclaimed to the people these words. Hearken, because that's the way they talked back then. Hearken, sons of the forest, no blood shall flow this night, save that which pity has drawn from a mother's breast. For this is the birth night of Christ, the Son of the Almighty, the Savior of mankind. Father is he that Baldair the beautiful, that's one of their other gods, greater than Odin the wise, the king of their gods, kinder than Freya the good, another one of their goddesses. Since he has come, his sacri he has come sacrifice is now ended. The dark Thor on whom you have vainly called is dead, deep in the shades of Nephilim. He is lost forever. And now on this Christ night, that's Christmas night, 
you shall begin to live. This blood tree shall darken your land no more. In the name of the Lord, I'll destroy it. And he began to cut down the tree. He picked up a nearby axe, and as legend has it, he took one mighty swing at the oak, and with a great gust of wind arose through the forest, and the tree fell, roots and all, with one swing. Kind of like Thor himself, but now it was Boniface on behalf of God taking down the thing that was being used for evil. The tree laid on the forest floor, broken into four pieces. Later, Boniface would have a chapel built from the wood, but the story doesn't end with a thunder tree's downfall. Boniface had faced the mighty Thor, and the slender monk had won. Yay, Boniface won, right? That's good. The apostle of Germany, which is what they ended up calling Boniface after this, continued to preach to the astound Germanic peoples who were in disbelief that the slayer of Thor's thunder oak had not been struck down by their god. Boniface looked beyond where the oak had fallen, and he pointed to a small, unassuming fir tree like this. Does that kind of look like a tree familiar to you? This tree? What does that look like? Yeah, it looks like a Christmas tree, right? That's right. It's small little fir. And Boniface said, This little tree, a young child of the forest, shall be your holy tree tonight. It is the wood of peace. It is the sign of an endless life, for its leaves are evergreen. See how it points upward to heaven? See how the tree points upward all the way? Let this be called the tree of the Christ child. Gather about it, not in the wild wood, but in your own homes. There it will shelter no deeds of blood, but loving gifts and rites of kindness. So he said, bring it into your house. And so today, the Germans began a new tradition that night. And today, by bringing in a fir tree into their homes, decorating it with candles and ornaments, and celebrating the birth of a Savior, Boniface and his flock gave us what we now call the Christmas tree. The legend spread, and soon Christmas trees became the norm in every converted Bavarian, that's German, town. And eventually extended out to become today's tinsel-strewn, electric-lit, bauble-hung festival, worthy of a cosmic battle, right? Yeah, you have a Christmas tree, too. Though these trees of ours started out as an ordinary reminder of the everlasting life of an unassuming child born to save the world, to bring peace into darkness, to forests in the darkest hearts. And that's why we keep our Christmas tree kind of simple, because it's more like the tree that Boniface did, to remind us. Not that it's not, you can decorate your tree all you want, but it to help us to remember the simple thing that it was meant to teach us. The Christmas tree is the wood of peace, a symbol of the everlasting peace made by Jesus' sacrifice, not our own, a reminder that heaven and earth come together, that righteousness and peace kiss, like Miss Tina said, in an unassuming child whose birth we celebrate, this Christmas tree has become so common and so prolific at this time of year that it, it seems just to fade into the background, doesn't it? It's easy to put up our trees and not think about it, to just have them and see them all around and symbols everywhere. But even the ones in our homes become like white noise amidst the present surroundings and the events of the holidays. But what if it was different? What if just for a minute we remembered the wooden tree of peace, the tree of peace? In some way, this universality of the tree, which has brought so much acclaim, has also caused us to disappear out of sight. But perhaps, though, we can look through the trees adorning in our living rooms and catch a glimpse of the peace brought in such a humble form as a newborn child that would one day hang upon a tree for our sake. Who would, for in Jesus, as Paul says, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through Jesus, to reconcile himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. And that's the story of the Christmas tree. <laughs> Yay. Thank you guys for joining me.
You guys can go back to your seat. <laughs> now we get bread. Almost. You know how the, you know how the flow works. <laughs> we will get bread soon. It is peace, wholeness, shalom that comes when the steadfast love and faithfulness of God not only act on our behalf, but dwell with us. When righteousness, restored relationship, and peace kiss. It's this longing for salvation through God's action in relationship, through a person, a Messiah, that the forerunners of our faith anticipated with life-shaping angst. God's people, after they came home from being slaves again, had forgotten how God wanted them to live or who they were supposed to be. So, all day they listened to stories about the wonderful things God had done for his people, how he made the world, how he gave a special promise to Abraham, how he rescued them from slavery, how he spoke to Moses and showed them how to live, how he brought them to a special land, how he rescued them, no matter what, time after time, over and over again, because of his never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. They remembered how God had always, all through the years, been loving his children, keeping his promise to Abraham, taking care of them, forgiving them, even when they disobeyed, even when they ran away from him, even when they thought they didn't need him. Then God told his children something more. He said, I can't stop loving you. You are my heart's treasure, but I lost you. Now I am coming back for you. I am like the sun that gently shines on you, chasing away darkness and fear and death. You'll be so happy. You'll be like the little calves running free in an open field. I'm going to send my messenger, the promised one, the one you have been waiting for, the rescuer. He is coming, so get ready. It has taken centuries for God's people to be ready, but now the time has almost come for the best part of God's plan. God himself was to come, not to punish his people, but to rescue them. God was ready to wipe away every tear from every eye. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, among us, and until all know what we know. Peace, goodwill among mankind. Hey, if you want to go ahead and uh, grab a beverage, grab a snack, and grab a seat, we're going to go ahead and get started. Jump back into things. And Kylie's going to read for us a, um, a part of Zechariah chapter 9. Um, hello, our scripture reading is from Zechariah 9, verses 9 through 13. It says, Shout and cheer, daughter Zion. Raise the roof, daughter Jerusalem. Your king is coming, a good king who makes all things right. A humble king riding a donkey, a mere colt of a donkey. I've had it with war. No more chariots in Ephraim. No more war horses in Jerusalem. No more swords and spears, bows and arrows. He will offer peace to the nations, a peaceful rule, a peaceful rule worldwide from the four winds to the seven seas. And you, because of my blood covenant with you, I'll release your prisoners from their hopeless cells. Come here, hope-filled prisoners. This very day, I'm declaring a double bonus. Everything you've lost, return twice over. Judah is now my weapon, and the bow I'll pull, setting Ephraim as an arrow to the string. 
I'll wake up your sons, O Zion, to counter your sons, O Greece. From now on, people are my swords. Your king is coming, a good king who makes all things right, says Zechariah. Zechariah's name, the name of the one who spoke of this apocalyptic revelatory picture that Kylie read for us moments ago, his name means the Lord remembered. Although it seems so at times that God does, doesn't, although it seems so at times, God doesn't actually forget us. He doesn't lose interest in us. He remembers us. He cares about us. But he comes in his time, not ours, as Lily's recap of our face heritage reminds us, right? In preparation for coming to his people, a people engaged in the difficult and seemingly endless work of building a life good, Zechariah encouraged them. He described the future, like all good prophets do, keeping the picture, the vision of God's blessing vividly before them. Central to that vision, contends Eugene Peterson, was a promised king. A good king who makes all things right, a humble king with no swords or spears or weapons to secure and conquer, at least in the typical sense and fashion. A king who offers us peace. Centuries later, Matthew tells the story that sounded a lot like Zechariah's vision, right? And so he identified the long-awaited king. I think we have a picture of it. There we go. Yeah, yeah. Identified the long-awaited king as Jesus of Nazareth. While the king's arrival was something worth celebrating with Hosanna shouts and palm branch parades, it's how the king came that made him distinctive. What was distinctive about him was his character, the nature of his arrival that carried through into the disposition of his life lived. Not merely his conquest, but how he came and how he went about it. He was, as Zechariah portrayed, a good king who used his might not merely to end evil, but to mend what was broken, both physically and relationally within us and between us. He was a humble king who came not into the newborn form into a queen's palace, which he surely could have, but into a commoner's cramped space, borrowed at that, right? Nor into the culmination of his life's work did he arrive, as the picture portrays, on a majestic chariot, but on a mere colt, once again, one that was borrowed, Depended, as it were, like us, on the Father's grace through others. In a world bustling with commerce, not unlike the particular season we find ourselves, right? In bristling with conflict, again, not too dissimilar from our time and place. God entered, contends Pastor Peterson, unpretentiously, meek and lowly, in his birth, in his life, in his conquering all that ends life good bringing justice not with a powerful fist, as we sang, but with a peaceful hand, a hand that because of his blood covenant would be extended to all, first and foremost to those who found themselves in one form of prison or another. For what did Zechariah say? I'll release your prisoners from this hopeless cells. Come home, hope-filled prisoners. The world is used to battles fought with chariots and war horses, swords and spears, bows and arrows, and any other form of weapon, physical, psychological, economical, or otherwise, that we can imagine and muster. It's into this world that an unlikely king came, a long-awaited but unlikely king born of a virgin and laid where animals ate, 
growing in wisdom and stature and favor with God and his neighbors as he learned to work the wood, the carpenter's son, and build a life like everyone else. And then stepping out in faith and in the Spirit into three years of wandering with prophetic purpose, revealing God's kingdom come and his will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Until one day, riding on a donkey to the cheers of those who had been waiting for him all these years, waiting for him to come, but to come to his end. Perhaps because our minds have a hard time envisioning conquering, even essential enemies like death and sin, without enacting some measure of violence or force, apocalyptic vision, as we talked about last week, the revelation, depicts the one worthy to begin the end, which is a new beginning this way. Weep no more, says the angel. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. An image probably we're familiar with, the Lion of Judah. We long for God to come and to conquer, to be the root of David, the king, to come and lead his army forward. A vision that, again, that when we think of conquering, maybe is more familiar. In between the throne and among the elders, instead of a lion, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. And the elders fell down before the lamb. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Without weapons or war rhetoric came the expected but unlikely king, the Lion of Judah, who is indeed the Lamb slain, arriving not in retribution for rebellions past and rejections present, nor ridicule at remembering him not, but rather in restoration, arriving to the prisoners, bringing hope, as we, have revealed, as we revealed last week, to the hopeless in their cells, arriving to release them, to return them home, and to restore everything they lost twice over, as Zechariah envisioned it. What did he say? This very day I'm declaring a double bonus. Everything you lost, return twice more. The kingdom contends Malcolm Guy in its arrival and our experience, our entering it, offers us a double reversal, a double renewal. For at the core of Christ's mission, the long-awaited rescuer, the unlikely, the good and humble king's conquering, is of all things a redemption. Not the ending of time and life, but rather the mending of all that is bent and fractured in our fall. Not an end, but a mend. Twice over, double renewal means we are not only freed, restored to right relationship with God. What keeps us from life has gone away. What keeps us from life whole and holy with God and one another and self has been removed. But made whole, not only is our ability to be righteous made or we made whole, but we're able now to live in and with peace. To be a kingdom of priests as the revelation reveals. And so to be our true selves. Our truest selves, as Jesus said, peacemakers, heirs of God. A double blessing to be freed and to be given a purpose for that freedom. All that was taken, not just what binds us, what keeps us from what we want, but actually allowing us to get and to experience the fullness of all that we could beyond even imagine and ask. 
So come home, hope-filled prisoners, shouts the prophet in his apocalyptic picture. Come home to the people you who you are freed to be, makers of peace, for hope has arrived, and peace is with us. The ending that is amending is actually underway. For this is what Jesus said in the days after his death, alive again. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. I actually said this before, sorry, before he died. <laughs> peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give it to you. I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. To whomever and whatever is in the hopeless cell, the unlikely king, the lion who is a lamb, speaks peace. Release and restoration, not into what was, not into simply what was, but rather something different, deeper, doubled. Freedom of purpose as priest over our daily stewarding. So, what part of your life is Jesus speaking peace this season? Are you imprisoned by addiction or doubt, disappointment or anger, unforgiveness or bitterness, envy or jealousy, lust or greed? What imprisons you? And what does Jesus speak peace to? But not just what does Jesus release you from. Remember, it's a double blessing. It's not just a single. For what peacemaking is Jesus freeing you? Into what is Jesus calling you? To be your true priestly self. For just a few moments, in the hustle and bustle of a busy season, let's consider those questions. Asking the Spirit to help us see what binds us, who frees us, and what He frees us for. I'll pray for us, and then we'll just have a few minutes of quiet for you to ask and listen and respond as the Lord leads. Father, we thank you that what was waited for for centuries, millennia even, has come in the person of Jesus. Not just come to proclaim the good news of you with us, but to make a way for you to dwell with us always through his life and death and resurrection, through the sending of your spirit that now indwells us. That we might not just be ones who get to live free, but ones who get to live into the freedom of who we were meant to be. Not for just ourselves, but for your good and your glory. Free to be more than we could imagine and ask. For a few moments this afternoon, Holy Spirit, give us eyes to see and ears to hear what Jesus frees and what he frees us into. It's in his name we pray. Amen.